0: Close your eyes.
1: It's half past midnight, and you're listening to The Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to The Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brandon Store. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number one hundred and seventy-nine, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach.
2: All my friend,
1: happy new year! Happy new year to you, sir. Did you have a good New Year's? What'd you get up to?
2: I watched a film. I ate lots of cheese and watched some fireworks. Some bands I wasn't very keen on, and then I went to bed.
1: That sounds pretty good. That sounds remarkably similar to what I did. I, uh, <laughs> I watched a couple movies with my lovely wife. And she went to bed early, and then I, myself, got high and passed out on the couch. And that was the extent of of my New Year's. I will say, though, I watched a great New Year's horror film called Bloody New Year's. (laughs) And if if you get a chance, I think in America, it's streaming on Tubi for free. Vinegar Syndrome did a remaster of it, which apparently looks really good. So you can can buy that if you want. Yeah, it's like uh, before Lost, there was Bloody New Year's. That's all I'll say. I won't give away anything else. But uh, very, very fun 1980s uh, slasher film set on an island and set around New Year's. So if you're if you're thinking to yourself, boy, I can't find a copy of New Year's Evil, but I really want to watch a New Year's themed horror film for next year, we got you covered.
2: Yes. Are there any holidays left without a uh, bloody horror film attached to them, especially after we've just had Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving,
1: we've got uh, Valentine for, I, don't, I shouldn't have to tell anyone that. My Bloody Valentine. Of course, yeah, a a truly classic Canadian horror film. Yes,
2: absolutely batshit crazy.
1: It sure is, and one of the few horror films where the remake is actually okay too.
2: Mm, And that's saying something.
1: Yes, yes it really is. (laughs) But no, we're not here to talk about those things, we are instead here to talk about The Legend of Old Blue Eyes. this episode is going to be one long story, and that story is one that's pretty legendary in military circles, from what I understand. And it it comes from the research I did for our Haunting in the Military episodes from last year. Of course, we did Haunting in the Military parts one and two, and this was intended to be the third part. It was supposed to come out last year, but I hung on to it because I I felt like it it needed a special occasion because it is, again, it's, it's one long story. And I thought, what better time than the first episode of 2024? And I'm really eager, Paul, to hear some of the other stories that you know of from Edwards Air Force Base as we go. And I think what we'll probably do is we'll read the story, the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll just do a big old breakdown of it at the end. But before we do, we have to thank our patrons.
2: This one's
0: for the patrons.
1: Patrons, you're the honeybee to our flower, which is to say, without you, we'd be real pretty, but we wouldn't get much done. <laughs> and so, of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. But right now, we'd like to thank our latest... They are Brenda Joy, Julia Cat Martin, Tim L, A.C. Cowart, Ruth Ellen, Josie, Carrie Daly, Fiona C.G., It's Jess, and Neville, Paul Campbell, and Debsy Websey. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so, so much for your generous support. Again, I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. Every person who listens to the Ghost Story Guys, you help make the show what it is. But our patrons and Apple podcast subscribers are the ones who truly allow the show to continue. We simply couldn't do this without your support. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you can support even at the dollar a month level, it would be deeply appreciated if every person who listened to this show, or even a third of the people who listened to this show supported us at the dollar a month level, it would be a life-changing amount of money. And so if you can give even that much, it is appreciated. And that gets you an ad free feed. So you get, you'd get something. For the cash, that's 25 cents an episode, basically, where you don't have to listen to ads. And you can do that at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Or if you don't like Patreon's app, and I can understand why, it is garbage. <laughs> you can also sign up to GST Premium via Apple Podcasts. One last thing, shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. You can find more from Jerry by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts anywhere. You get your tunes. You can also find his other project, Street Witch, on streaming platforms everywhere. And don't forget our very first soundtrack, Ghost Story Guys Season 6, which features, you guessed it, music from Season 6, that's 2022. That is now streaming on Apple Music and Spotify. And I think it's started propagating out to the other services. So if you are out there on Tidal or Deezer or whatever the hell other platforms, Caboose, you will find. Ghost Story Guys Season 6, composed by Rainy Days for Ghosts, and Season 7 should be out in February. All right. We have a grand cryptid story waiting for us on the other side of the break, so we're going to take a minute and be right back with a legend of old blue eyes. Welcome back. As we said before the break, on this episode, we're going to be sharing the story of Blue Eyes. Blue Eyes is a well-known legend at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. And now, again, this is one long story taken from the blog of a former serviceman who claims to have been one of the responding officers during the actual incident. Now I don't know how this has happened. I cannot find the blog from which I have taken this story. And it is driving me crazy because I wanted to credit the person obviously on the air. The post is about 13 years old. I don't even know if the serviceman is alive anymore. I know he was elderly when he wrote this, but regardless, if I can find it, I'll post it in the show notes. If I can't, well, Christ, maybe someone out there who will have heard the story will know who posted this originally. Again, it was just on a random blog I found linked through a couple of different posts in a military forum. Anyways, it's a fascinating story. It's a story I was not personally aware of. Of course, you know, we have done a few military episodes, so this will probably be the last one for a while, but this was such an interesting singular tale that I felt we, we had to tell it on the show. And before we do, though, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of background in case you're not familiar with Edwards Air Force Base. For those of you who don't know, Edwards Air Force Base is obviously on Air Force Base. This hopefully is not catching you by surprise at this point. <laughs> what? Well, I, sorry, I should have told you to sit down first. It's in the Mojave Desert, about 83 miles southeast of Bakersfield, California. If you know California at all, I would say maybe about halfway between LA and Bakersfield, but to the East. It's about 80 minutes from Bakersfield, according to Google Maps. It's a huge place. It apparently, according to their website, covers 301,000 acres or 470 miles. And again, according to their site, you could fit Los Angeles inside it with room to spare, which when you think about the scale of that is nuts. That is a colossal amount of space. LA, of course, is just a, it's not even a city. LA is more of a concept than anything. It's it's just streets loosely connected together. It's, It's insane. So the notion that it would fit just inside this military base is almost inconceivable. But just a couple more things. It is the home of the Air Force Test Center, which according to Wikipedia and the Air Force's own site, conducts research, development, test, and evaluation of aerospace systems from concept to deployment. So I have to assume experimental aircraft, things like this. And it is also home of the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, which also trains pilots in experimental craft, as I understand it. it it's sort of a very high-functioning pilot training. And he, I, one other sort of little amusing thing, it has the largest runway in America. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Denver International has the longest, but as we all know, it's not length, it is in fact very- girth. <laughs> 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 And Edwards Edwards Air Force Base wins in pure square footage because it is fifteen thousand and twenty four feet long and three hundred feet wide, whereas Denver is a measly two hundred feet wide. Suck it, Denver International Take Airport. Take that, exactly. But so before we get started, though, Paul, you were telling me that you are familiar with other stories from that region.
2: Oh yes, the desert Bigfoot. This is probably the best area in the U.S. where there are numerous encounters with what some people down there call the Yucca Man. It's the same, essential. It's got all kinds of names. It seems to be attracted to military installations. I know there are some people who think because these creatures are such frequent visitors to the area, the authorities are very aware of what they are, and often will put rookies on sentry duty to sort of gauge their ability to deal with the situation in regards to how they would face combat in other situations. Really? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a test for rookies. Oh, okay. At several bases. So, obviously further down from Edwards Air Base, you've got the 29 Trees Base. Uh, 29 Palms. Base. 29 Palms, sorry. 29 Palms Base. and um, Numerous sightings around there. Some rather intriguing ones where uh, a few people have been chased people have seen them playing people have seen them running about as though they're sort of playing tag or hide and seek with the marines really? um yeah so uh, the Mojave desert is there are numerous situations where air force personnel and people driving cars have seen extremely large creatures some of the reports are up to 12 feet tall interesting
1: i had no idea to be honest i didn't even know there was a uh a base at 29 Palms, and for those of our listeners who, who don't know, that base is the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center, 29 Palms.
2: Mm, I think it's, is it in the Joshua Tree National Park?
1: Um, I don't know it's if it's there, in National Park. It's probably nearish to the National Park.
2: So yeah, there's there's loads of places. There used to be an abandoned speedway out there as well, like a racetrack, okay. drag track, and they, their version of it, apparently it would come to watch or they would come to watch, and it became known as the Speedway Monster. No way. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an alleged photo of the Yucca Man from 1990, I think it is, which essentially could be a tall person wearing some kind of furry, snuggly top. It's not very clear, and I'm not convinced. It shows a Bigfoot. Um, it's also strangely blurry and it's a bigfoot photo some people may be surprised by that that's of <laughs> the fits yeah but the 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 position of the photo it looks as though it's behind it it's not running across if that makes sense the position of the body looks as though it's standing away facing away not running across the the line of sight so i'm i'm intrigued as to why it would be blurry if that makes sense
1: is that the one of the dirt road at night yes yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It, uh, it's not particularly compelling to me.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, one of my favorite ones from that particular area is just over the border in Nevada, and I have I have a newspaper report from the Sacramento Bee, which is one of my favorite names of a newspaper ever in the world, and uh, this was from 1980, and I shall read it to you. 22nd of January 1980, the paper published the following report: Bigfoot. Creature spotted at test site Security forces at the Nevada test site searched unsuccessfully last week for a large, hairy, man-like creature reportedly wandering along a road in a desolate nuclear testing ground, a Department of Energy spokesman announced on Monday. The creature was reported shortly after noon last Wednesday by an employee of Reynolds Electrical, one of the prime contractors at the sprawling Rhode Island-sized test site. Spokesman Dave Jackson said that the weather was clear at the time and the unidentified worker is considered to be a reliable person. It was said that the man was driving along the Tipaway Highway, which runs from Area 12 camp on the northern end of the test site, to the command post which is near the US 95, when he saw what he described as a being, somewhere between 6 to 7 feet tall, standing erect and walking like a man, covered completely in dark hair. He said the worker passed the creature, stopped his truck and observed the being cross the highway going in a northeasterly direction towards the Yucca Flats. He watched it until it disappeared out into the sagebrush. Jackson said the man reported he came between 30 to 50 yards of the creature. Normally no one would be in the area where the sighting was made except for vehicle traffic from one part of the test site to another, Jackson explained. The man drove directly to the command post at Mercury and reported the incident immediately to the security guards, who came out, looked at the area and could not find any tracks or evidence that the beast had been there. This report is thought to be the first made in Nevada, but over the years, numerous reports of sightings of a large man-like being have been made in the Pacific Northwest, where the creature has been named Sasquatch. Similar reports of Bigfoot have been made over the border in California. Fascinating! I had no idea. I I spoke with uh, a gentleman called Bruce Champagne a couple of years ago, and he's done tons of investigation about desert-based Bigfoot sightings. A lot of them are based uh, down in the Mojave, Death Valley, and places like that. So it's it's not as unusual. Uh, Bruce was very convinced that the Bigfoots were following the water trails and canyons to keep out of sight. Um, But he'd collected numerous reports from ranchers and people. Who had encountered them in very isolated areas Um, and obviously some of these encounters are quite hair-raising for the people that encountered these giant creatures because they are supposedly quite large
1: a long time ago i drove down that highway i drove down us-95 all the way from basically from um, i want to say from idaho all the way down past the testing range actually and i gotta say man if i saw a six to eight foot tall hairy beast by the side of the road. I put out is one way to put it. I would be goddamn terrified. Because it it is lonely out there.
2: <laughs> mm. I know there also there also used to be a festival out there called the Yucca Man Shakedown in celebration of the uh, of the creature. And there is also well there used to be this is a this is a strange thing. There's a brewery company called Ogopogo Brewing, who are based in California, oddly, who okay. do a Yucca Man Imperial Stout. No kidding. So it's a a cryptid double hit there. Lake Monster Beer. (laughs) What's really
1: interesting is I'm looking at a website here, the Lancaster uh, Museum of Art and History, and they're saying that Yucca Man was first spotted on 29 Palms Marine Base in 1971. And the story that we're about to share was first, it it happened in 1974.
2: Yeah, there was a report in 19... 79 from edwards air force where a guard was found uh, extremely disheveled and frightened after running into one that charged him smashed his truck up broke his gun in half and then ran off making strange noises no shit yeah didn't hurt him but just smashed everything else he had
1: as we're about to see the creature has a penchant for destruction because it causes some real damage good for them <laughs> that's right everyone needs a hobby
2: yes I've seen exists and I know it's surreal.
1: (laughs) That is a terrifying thought, Jesus. I just finished reading Luke Phillips Rogue before the end of last year and yikes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my mum's reading it as we speak and she's written a list of everybody that she wants to get eaten in it, which I think is a bit worrying.
1: (laughs) Piss off Paul's mom, end up eaten by Bigfoot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But yes, did you enjoy it?
1: I did. I really liked it. I, I know, uh, You and I have talked about getting Luke on a Talk Spooky episode, and I I very much look
2: forward to doing that. Yes, he's very excited to join us, so hopefully we can thrash something out. Oh,
1: yeah, 100%. I mean, I I, I want to try and needle him for details on the sequel, Southern Rogue. (laughs) Oh, Paul's giving me the I Know Something You Don't Know face.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, there's a lot going on, isn't there? You know, it's like that special place where they take the naughty ones and leave them, and they're kind of indicating some kind of planet of the Bigfoot coming.
1: Oh man, it, it, folks, we, we won't dwell on this, because obviously if you guys haven't read it, it's going to be kind of a dry conversation, but there is a, a, a twist in Rogue. If you are a fan of of all the stuff we talk about, cryptids and, and horror, and I was thrilled when it happened, and uh, you will be too, I suspect. But again, we'll we'll save that for when we have Luke Phillips on the show to talk about it. And in the meantime, you can read it for free on Kittle Unlimited. I recommend it. It's a long book, but it's worth it. It's a fun action horror novel. that. He really seems to know his stuff, you know. In terms of, uh, and I'm sure Paul is. That, is that would you say that's correct? Like he really seems to have done his research as far as the the terminology and history and things like this.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of he's he's, he's done his stuff. I mean, uh, I, I've spoken to Luke a lot, and he loves he loves his cryptids. Obviously, it's his first foray into a, uh, bipedal cryptids because he's done a lot of um, monstrous cat stories in his previous works. But yeah, he he really cross-referenced it and spoke to people and dove really into Bigfoot law to kind of touch the bases. I mean, even down to utilising the, the tribal nations that are mentioned in the book. And he's obviously done his research in regards to language and tradition and what they do. So it's it, it's not somebody paying lip service to a lot of these things. He's he's taken the time and consideration to really sort of research the bits that he needs to do to give the book its authenticity and especially with the twist that comes with about four chapters to go, um, because I was like, whoa, I was not (laughs) expecting this. I just thought somebody would get bigger guns.
1: Well, I guess in a way they do.
2: (laughs) Yes, magic guns. Magic
1: guns. (laughs) All right, well, again, that's Luke Phillips Rogue. Find a link in the show notes if you want to uh, read it on Kindle Unlimited or pick it up. We'll be talking to Luke on on an upcoming episode of Talk Spooky to Me. But with that, we are going to dive right into the story of the legend of Old blue eyes. In
2: 1974, I had recently returned from a tour of Southeast Asia only to find myself assigned to Edwards Air Force Base in the upper Mojave Desert where the summer heat could hit 133 degrees but a chilly night could drop below zero. I was a law enforcement specialist and a member of the 6510 security squadron. Now there were some who thought that the strange night I'm about to talk about, and the days to follow, had something to do with the experiments NASA was conducting up in their high security area. We knew they did some really weird things up there, and it was even rumoured that they were the ones who actually had the Roswell alien aircraft. And the three dead aliens. Their compound on Edwards North Base area was extremely secretive, well guarded, and very mysterious. I once watched a helicopter crash into the compound, which was mostly underground, and the guards wouldn't even let us, the ambulance, or the fire trucks in. Strange place. There were others who claimed that night was all tied in with so many of the mysterious UFO sightings during that same time period but a lot of the Air Force personnel who worked that flight line felt that these sightings were the only highly classified Air Force and NASA aircraft buzzing about. These aircraft only flew at night and did cause some bizarre lighting effects. Then we had a few people who thought it was all a hoax, tied in with the recent showing of a Bigfoot movie at the Bay Theatre. But for me, that summer of 1974 was a very real experience one that still makes me wonder what really did happen in that desert compound, and who, or what, was Blue Eyes.
1: To me, the high desert country was a thing of mystery, a land where the imagination came alive and shadows of all forms, from dinosaurs to Martians, seemed to move about under a full moon. I spent almost all my free time exploring the 300 square miles of Edwards, second largest military installation in the continental USA, and third or fourth largest in the world. I have to admit I sometimes drove off base when I was on duty, but with good reason, or at least what I thought to be a good reason. My supervisors didn't always agree with my reasoning or my antics, and they often grounded me by putting me behind a desk. I became the sea flight primary desk sergeant, handling the radios, alarms, typing the reports and a running police blotter, and talking with people over the phone or walk-ins. The center of Edwards, or what we called Main Base, Was a large island-like complex surrounded by a sea of sand. This was our service housing and barracks, stores in the various maintenance buildings, a massive flight line, and two active runways. The runways ended at a huge dry lake bed, which was used to land test aircraft, and these covered a distance of several miles in length and over a mile wide. This provided Edwards with the longest runway in the world, and would come to be used as the emergency landing strip for the space shuttle. Occasionally, a B-52 would need to make an emergency belly landing, diverted to Edwards because they carried nukes on board, and Edwards was considered to be expendable if the bomb went off on landing. We'd all go out to watch it circle the base, using up its fuel and then come in for its belly landing. For one brief moment, everyone on base would hold their breath until the plane came to a stop and then smile when no
2: mushroom cloud appeared to ruin our scheduled barbecue we had planned. Edwards Air Force Base Named after a Captain Edwards who was killed testing the flying wing was the Air Force Flight Test Centre. Assorted manufacturers brought their latest jet aircraft to Edwards to test and hopefully sell it to the military at great expense. The northern part of the base, the area situated off the flight line, belonged to NASA and they conducted their own tests with some mighty funny looking aircraft. This brought great delight to the local UFO society. Far across the lake bed from the main base area was an area known as the Rocket Site. It had a longer and formal name, but we just called it the Rocket Site. Here they tested amongst other things rocket engines. They also had numerous labs, some of them underground and all highly classified. We would sometimes refer to them as the Magic Shop. And I am here to tell you, some of the strangest things happened up there. And these are a story in themselves, but that's for a later time. After arriving at Edwards, I was quickly grabbed up by a very intelligent flight chief, who knew a good thing when he saw it. He made me the desk sergeant, placing me in charge of 28 to 30 patrols and two gateposts. Most of our incidents concerned theft, disorderly conduct, domestic problems in the housing, criminal mischief and assault, drug and alcohol violations and vehicle accidents. My job was also to represent the base commander as visitors passed through the base all the time. Edwards was an open installation back then and outside the flight line area, the two highways that ran through the base were used by civilian traffic, taking shortcuts to Los Angeles, Mojave and Lancaster and other communities in all four directions. Occasionally, tears flowing from my eyes, I prostrated myself before my flight chief and begged to escape my prison. Tired of my whining, He'd let me escape and go on patrol. I'd usually have an all-base patrol, which allowed me to go anywhere I wanted, and of course, I'd head for the desert. One of the laws on the base was no vehicle traffic in the desert after dark. And this was due to people becoming lost and dying out there. One time, my partner and I busted two men running guns to the boron mines, using the base of the desert area to reach the striking miners. I also found a case of dynamite, And one time, fortunately or cursed, I found an old World War I bomb. Boy, did I feel foolish when the bomb guy told me it was still live, especially after I'd picked it up. It was a photo flash bomb, used to light up the area to show bomb damage. When they blew up, it was brighter than the sun, and it would have simply evaporated me had it gone off when I dropped it. Again, my angels were watching over me. Poor guys were working overtime in my life.
1: And I, I just want to say, I, I, he, obviously, Edwards is now seems to be a closed base, so you can't like. There's no Google Street View of it, obviously, but uh, there are a handful of photo stops that people have taken and posted to Google, and it just is so desolate. There is nothing there. It looks like miles and miles of just burnt dirt. It's uh, spectacularly a spectacularly seer place.
2: It was built on the maximum distance they believed a nuclear bomb could go off without reaching LA. So now, is that in
1: terms of blast radius, or is that in terms of fallout as well? Because I feel like you would still get fallout.
2: at the fallout, it's just a blast. Fallout's only a problem if the wind's going the wrong way.
1: Well, as long as the wind does exactly what we want it to do, we will be fine.
2: (laughs) Yes, as we discovered with Chernobyl. Anyway.
1: Anyways, yes, back to the story. But on that summer night of 1974, I was on the desk and working the swing shift. 4 p.m. to 12 a.m., or 1,600 to 2,400 hours in military time. So far, it had been a quiet night. It was about 9.30 p.m. when the emergency line began to ring. I quickly reached up and grabbed the special phone before the ring even ended, startling my assistant desk sergeant with my speed. To my surprise, all I heard on the phone was a woman's loud, terror-filled scream, which was immediately followed by a thunk-like sound, which I imagined to be the phone hitting the floor or tabletop. This left me with an open phone line and no detectable background noises. We had set procedures for such incidents, and I grabbed up the other phone while advising my assistant to go get the flight chief from the other office. I called the base phone exchange, which always kept an open tap in our emergency line, which would show the exact location the call had come in from. It took a young sergeant about 12 minutes to show the location. A bit slower than usual, but the call had come in from the base Mars station on South Base. This surprised me. I was expecting a domestic disturbance from base housing or the woman's barracks. As I dispatched three patrol units to the MARS, which stands for Military Auxiliary Radio Station, I was recalling what the building looked like. A single building of approximately 800 square feet, manned 24 hours a day by between two to five personnel. It was their job to operate radio equipment, which connected them to locations all over the world, similar to ham radio operation but this Mars equipment was much more complicated and extremely expensive. The station was located eight miles south of the main base area, surrounded by a vast expanse of open desert. It would take my south base patrol a good five minutes to make it there. My highway patrol unit and a patrol I dispatched from the housing area would take approximately nine minutes to arrive on site for backup.
2: I had the assistant desk sergeant continue to listen in on the open line in the event that the caller came back on or if he could hear any other sounds, whilst I briefed the flight chief on the initial call and what actions I had taken. Eight minutes later, I had to record all the times in my running police blotter. My south base patrolman came on the emergency phone, and my assistant handed the phone to me. He requested an ambulance for two personnel and our flight chief to respond to the Mars station. When I asked for further details, he advised me it would have to wait, and I hated waiting so I dispatched the ambulance for unknown injuries and watched as my Flight Chief left the office to respond to the location. I was getting mighty curious and had a strong desire for a chocolate donut. Whenever I got anxious, I had a hankering for a donut and my £300 frame was evidence of this problem. Ten minutes later, the Flight Chief came over the radio and requested I contact the on-call investigator and have them respond. He also added that since I'd be typing up all the reports, I'd better respond at once, another NCO arrived to take over my duties. My assistant was only an airman first class, and at least a sergeant had to be on the desk at all times. I brought in a sergeant from off the North Base Patrol to relieve me, and I took his vehicle to respond to the site. The flight chief felt my first-hand look would help him what was needed to write up, and I could tell by his voice that he was somewhat confused. And this had me really wondering what had happened at the Mars station. The Mars station is one large two-storey open floor building, with the lower level sunken halfway into the desert floor, a split level surrounded by a hard-packed desert sand. The site is also surrounded by an eight-foot-tall chain-link fence with coils of barbed wire on top of it. A large vehicle gate, which was always secured by a chain and heavy lock, is the only access. The lower level of the building is three feet tall and made of cinder block construction. The only door has four wooden steps leading to it and there are four sets of two windows on each side of the building and the area inside the lot is completely lit up by overhead security lights. Driving south and grinding gears, I felt this location was one of the most secure sites on the south base, especially as it was manned 24-7. I figured it would be pretty difficult for someone to try and break in and assault the personnel. And why would they, unless someone wanted to steal all the equipment? And that's what I thought, until I arrived on the scene. When
1: I drove up, the first thing I noticed was how the heavy metal front gate was smashed down, appearing to be actually run over. All of the security police vehicles were parked outside the compound, not wanting to drive over any possible evidence. The centre of the gate was smashed down, but not wide enough for a vehicle to pass through, and it was still secured by the chain and lock. I believed it would have taken a very large and mighty heavy motorcycle to accomplish such a degree of damage. Something like a two-ton bike at least, and I couldn't remember any bikes weighing that much. I parked my funky patrol vehicle and walked into where the others were standing. The ambulance crew were inside the building. My flight chief saw me, and he walked over to brief me on what he had learned so far. He said the two people were working the swing shift at the Mars site that night. One was a female airman first class, and the other a male buck sergeant. Approximately 30 seconds before the emergency call was made, the two of them had been busy with their machines when they heard a loud crash outside. Though the female airman first believed one of the vehicles had been crashed into, it was the sergeant who suspected the main gate was being smashed. Neither of them was armed. The sergeant walked over to the one window that looked out toward the gate, and he suddenly startled the young female airman by giving off a half-scream before fainting to the floor with a whomp-like sound. Unfortunately, this would embarrass the young sergeant for some time. Seeing her supervisor collapsed on the floor, she ran over to the telephone to call the security police. This is when she had shrieked into the mouthpiece, hurting my ear, before fainting to the floor only a few feet away from the young sergeant. When the South Base Patrol arrived on scene, He discovered the gate smashed inward and was smart enough to park outside and walk in, not wanting to destroy the gate further and cover over any tire prints caused by the intruder. He took caution, but remembering there were at least two people working inside, he continued to advance. He saw the two vehicles parked inside by the one entry door, but no other vehicles parked inside the compound
2: or outside the fence. He found the front door unlocked and discovered the two people unconscious on the floor. He first checked to make sure they were breathing and then took a brief look around before calling in. A combat veteran, his sixth sense was buzzing and he didn't like the feeling and this is why he wanted the flight chief dispatched to the location. None of the equipment appeared to be missing, nor was it damaged. Both personnel were at first incoherent with the security police and the ambulance personnel spouting off about some strange creature of amazing size. Due to this, Their squadron commander ordered hospital personnel to administer blood tests for possible alcohol or drug usage. Both tested out negative for both booze and illegal narcotics, and they had no record of prior illegal usage. This greatly relieved the Mars station supervisor, who first arrived at the site and then appeared at the hospital to check on his people. He was happy to see that none of the expensive equipment was destroyed, but the damage to the main gate troubled all of us. Later, When the two people were able to talk with us, refusing legal counsel, their separate stories were the same, and they'd never had the time to create a fable before their interviews. Doctors verified that they behaved as if truly shocked, and their faintings appeared to be real. They were still excitable while talking with our investigators, and I later typed up these interviews. After hearing the crashing noise, the sergeant first looked at his assistant's troubled expression and walked over to the window not knowing what he would find. He first saw that the gate was heavily damaged, and then he saw something that reminded him of a giant bear, which were his words, not mine. He thought it had burst through the gate and was now in the compound and approaching the building. He added that this thing, for a better term, had these two radiating blue eyes, one each the size of an old-fashioned silver dollar. The eyes glowed, he had said, The thing was dark in colour, even under the overhead security lights and all he could distinguish were those weird eyes and that was all he could remember. But, he added, that he had never seen such a creature before and especially around the site or even in the desert before this very strange moment. At the time, I thought it was very bizarre how he couldn't remember more about the thing but I'll get to that later. Now the girl, who was just 19 years old, She couldn't remember any shape or form whatsoever, just those radiating blue eyes staring back at her through a south side window as the thing came closer and closer. That's when she collapsed and now doesn't even remember making the call to me on the emergency line. Well, so much for interviews. We accomplished a thorough check of the place inside and outside. I half expected to find a large Californian grizzly or maybe an escaped gorilla hiding behind the Mars station. But we found no animal, or some man in an animal suit playing some kind of joke. We also didn't find a motorcycle with a battering ram to take the gate down. One of the patrolmen found a clump of hair on the gate, which was dark brown in colour and felt strange, unlike any hair I could recall, and it didn't feel like plastic or cloth. It was placed into the evidence.
1: The flight chief summoned me to the other side of the building, the same side where the window was that the female airman saw the thing. The flight chief had his flashlight aimed at the desert floor adjacent to the building. His beam was reflecting off a smashed Coke bottle, one of those little eight-ounce jobs. There was a foot impression, or what appeared to be a foot impression, right on top of the bottle glass. I say on top because the broken glass in the impression was driven down into the dirt. The investigator, summoned by myself, made a plaster cast of the prints and took all the glass in evidence. He had also taken a dozen or more photographs of the impression this side of the building, and, of course, the gate. We never found fresh tire tracks that could have come from a vehicle smashing its way through. Only the fresh tracks of the vehicles owned by the two airmen. The investigator also took impressions of the tires belonging to all the personnel who worked at the site. It appeared to all of us that the bottle had only recently been broken, the glass edges were clean and shiny, but the rest of the glass was dirty from long exposure. Now, from prior experience, I know I could stand on one of those bottles and never break it, and I was six foot seven, three hundred pounds, so I had to figure this thing was heavier than I. We also noticed that to look through this window, as the young airman had stated, the thing had to be over seven foot tall and closer to eight in height. The building was split level, making the first floor over three feet above ground. The thought of such a thing sent a cold chill up my back, and we tossed around all kinds of ideas. Was it NASA? Was it from a UFO? Or... Was it a prank? When the cast impression was pulled, it revealed a flat print just over 14 inches in length and 6 inches wide. There were no ridges, no marks or scars, a real flat foot. There was also no evidence of any blood from breaking the bottle. Nothing else was found at the site. Oddly enough, the very next day the Mars station was closed down. All the equipment was moved and placed into another facility closer to the main base. I finally finished my report, attached evidence sheets and interviews, and handed it over to my flight chief for him to review. I also added the needed information to my running police blotter. The blotter is always provided to the base commander so he can keep an eye on what was occurring around the base, so it was constantly reviewed for content, spelling errors and mistakes before being sent to the base command post. I can't tell you how many times I had to redo my blotter before I could go home. Everything looked okay tonight, and I returned to the dorm letting the mid-shift desk sergeant take over the reins. The oncoming flight was briefed on the incident and warned to keep their eyes open. An extra two-man patrol was assigned to South Base. The next morning, I was awakened by an unapologetic day-shift patrolman with loud knuckles, advising me my presence was required at SP headquarters. They wanted my blotter completely redone and all mention of last night removed. I was advised the incident report was gone, and later
2: discovered, so was the evidence. Although it felt wrong to retype the blotter, I followed my orders. I also wondered why the day shift guy couldn't have done it, but then I remembered my signature was required at the bottom of each page, so it took me less than an hour to accomplish what they wanted. Nothing happened for the next few nights except for the routine UFO sightings that were called in from off-base residents, and a few obscene phone calls called in by intoxicated buddies. But otherwise, it was quiet. And I was once again pestering my Flight Chief to let me back out on patrol, but he wouldn't budge. I was once more stuck on the desk, taking phone calls, handling walking complaints and dispatching my patrols to various calls. The whispers and rumours of the Blue Eyes incident had spread through the squadron and were then carried out throughout the base. It seemed we suddenly had a lot of help from other base residents, Everyone was watching the desert in hopes for any sign of this strange critter. With the desert off limits at night we were chasing a lot of people off the dirt roads or hideaways. A few nights later Blue Eyes was back in the limelight and I happened to be handling the desk traffic. I began to believe I had some weird sort of connection with this thing as he or she or just plain it always seemed to make an appearance on my shift. An elderly couple travelling through the base on their way to Bakersfield had an encounter with what they thought was a very large bear. They were driving north on the 120th highway when this critter suddenly appeared in front of them and bounced off the left side front bumper of their vehicle. They were calling in on one of the base emergency phones, which were scattered about the base roadways. I dispatched the south base patrol to their location. He reported that the couple had indeed struck some kind of animal, leaving blood and long deep brown hairs over most of the bumper area. He also mentioned that the hairs were very thick, unlike anything he'd ever seen before. Then he hit me with the bad news, how the couple remembered seeing the creature's eyes and how they were large and radiant blue in colour. That was enough. I had him escort the couple to headquarters so we could conduct a thorough interview and take photographs of the damage. I advised the patrolman to secure the hairs and blood samples with his evidence kit. The couple refused to be seen by the base emergency room, but agreed to come to headquarters. They were hoping for a report to provide to their insurance company. I also dispatched three other patrols into the area to see if they could locate the beast, but they were ordered not to leave their vehicle. I was sure a larger search would be conducted during daylight hours, giving the search teams a good range of visibility across that flat, desert landscape. There were also a lot of rattlers out there, and I didn't want one of my guys stumbling into a nest of them. We already had a couple of men out on sick call, and I couldn't afford to lose any more. When the couple arrived, I went outside to view the damage. The flight
1: chief, my boss, also came out, and he stood there admiring the damage, but refusing to utter a single word. The damage was there on the bumper and I'd say the critter this car hit was of sizable dimensions. So, the report was done, and you know what happened. Yep, everything was seized by the Office of Special Investigations. We like to say they're the Air Force version of the Men in Black. I was beginning to grow weary of these guys coming in and taking my work, but there was little I could do about it. Nothing happened for two nights, and I was enjoying a very nice day off when I was called in to assist the on-duty desk sergeant. He was new to this work, and everyone was being sent out to the base rocket site for a, quote, emergency officer needs assistance call. A dozen or more off-duty personnel came in because the desk sergeant had lost contact with the rocket site patrol, and the gate guard at that site reported hearing shots fired. So much for my day off. I won't use the patrolman's name because the incident was a mite embarrassing for him. He was found unconscious by responding patrols, his 38 caliber service revolver in the sand beside him, and all six rounds had been fired. Now, in the Air Force, if you fire even one round, for any reason, on duty and off the shooting range, you've got to file a report. Paperwork is what ran the military, and I figure we may have killed off a few forests in my time at Edwards Air Force Base. His story was how he was driving up around the rocket stands, this was where those huge rocket engines were brought to be tested, when he thought he'd seen some movement. The only light was coming from the moon, which was about three-quarters full at the time, and, of course, a few million stars. He wanted to check it out, and called into the desk that he was leaving his vehicle to check on something. Now, you have to understand, the rocket site is a good 20 miles from where the couple hit our alleged weird critter. Possible Martian, or an escaped gorilla, or bear with unusual eyes, or some kind of NASA experiment gone wrong. Eh, whatever it was. The patrolman walked around a bit, having illuminated the area with his spotlight and headlights. He was also using his flashlight. The only thing he could remember was this massive shape suddenly appearing in front of him. He recalls seeing a single blue eye, shaped like a silver dollar, and just as big. He doesn't remember pulling his revolver or firing it. He can only recall opening his eyes and seeing a half-dozen of his friends standing over him. A massive search was made of the area. Footprints, similar to the one at the Mars Station, were discovered, and casts were made. There was no blood, so it appeared the patrolman missed all six times. I assisted the on-duty desk sergeant with the reports and filing the evidence, knowing it would all disappear in the morning anyways. After two hours of searching, the flight chief called everyone in, and another search would be made of the area in the morning by day shift. I went back to the barracks and got a few more hours of sleep, thinking I'd hitch a ride up there in the morning and look around myself. Instead, I got called into the office of my NCOIC non-commissioned officer in charge, and briefed on the events of the last night and how he wanted the new report to be typed up. I thought the on-duty guy would get stuck with this, but for some reason, he wanted me to type it up. I think it was some sort of punishment for the way I added some flair to the previous blue-eye
2: reports. A week went by and no new reports of blue-eyes, and we began to think that the critter was either dead, chewed up by coyotes, or had decided to move along. Finally. I was allowed back on South Base Patrol. After a few hours of patrol, I parked down on the day picnic grounds. There was a small lake and half a dozen picnic tables, with a shaded area and some barbecue pits. I was outside my truck. An old 1968 Chevy pickup, with a three-speed stick on the column. Top speed of around 70 miles an hour, but good for desert travel, if you don't mind getting stuck two to three times a night. We kept a special jack and a shovel in the back for such events. Walking around and answering nature's call, due to too much coffee, I saw something moving across the horizon. The moon was full and the desert was lit up. The shape, which reminded me of a very large Christmas tree, was moving across the ground at a good pace. I just stood there, knowing it couldn't be a vehicle, not with that shape, and started to get excited. Maybe, just maybe, this was old blue eyes, and I'd finally have my chance to take this critter down. Actually, I was only armed with my thirty-eight revolver, so my hopes of big game hunting were diminished some. I dashed over to my truck. I was in the process of grabbing my microphone when an emergency call came over the radio. There'd been a big bar fight at the NCO club, and I was one of the patrols being dispatched. I thought for a moment about not replying and going off in pursuit of the beast, but I knew better. Besides that, when I looked to see which way the critter had gone, the horizon was now empty of my Christmas tree. Vanished. I only told my flight chief of the sighting that night, and he simply nodded his head up and down and smoked his cigarette. Then he pointed at the desk, and I knew I was off patrol once again. This was the end of Blue Eyes. We never had another report of him haunting the base. The patrolman who emptied his revolver spent a night at the hospital and asked never to be assigned to the rocket site again, which he wasn't. I often searched the desert on my days off, hoping to find some sign of blue eyes. Recently, I heard there was a story of blue eyes on the internet and I checked it out. The whole story, which was supposed to be back when we had our first sighting of blue eyes, was total bunk. Reports of patrol cars being tipped over, patrolmen injured. Ridiculous. None of that happened. If anything, old Blue Eyes seemed to be quite a timid creature, though he did smash down the Mars station gate, and I was always curious why.
1: Alright, so that's the story of Blue Eyes from Edwards Air Force Base. What are your thoughts, Paul?
2: There's a very interesting part of this, which is obviously Blue Eyes, okay? And this is something that's only recently been discovered by primatologists. So, of all the species of monkeys and apes around the world, there are 77 different types of eye colouring in all of them. And I would imagine that not many people know that. Most people would presume monkeys and apes to have brown eyes. I would presume. However, they have every shade you can imagine. They have more difference than humans do in their eye colouring. And there is one aspect of this that has only recently been discovered as I referred to. And that is, creatures that are closer to the equator will have a lighter eye colour. Oh. So, people have dismissed this as saying, well, why would a Bigfoot have blue eyes? It's nonsense. Why would it? Well, a Bigfoot living in that particular area would have lighter coloured eyes because the pigmentation of your eye, the lighter it is, usually means that the area you are in is sunnier. So a Bigfoot living in a desert environment would naturally tend to have blue eyes because of the amount of sunlight it would see. So if you're going to make a story up, that's an intricate part of something that they wouldn't have known when this happened. Because, like I said, this, is, this has happened in the last 10 years that this discovery has been made about by primatologists. That is so interesting. I mean, I find the story
1: really believable. Now, I, I don't know a lot about military structure or military practice, so it may just be that there's enough fabricated detail here to make it seem legitimate, but it it does seem very assured for a, a gentleman who did not seem, based on his, again, the remainder of his blog, which I wish I could find, um, it did not seem like he was someone who was given to writing fiction. You know, he was very much a a, a, a soldier. I think he became a, a law enforcement officer after he left the military. Uh, I know, you know, politically, he and I were very far apart. So he was not. I don't know. He was he was just a guy. He was not a, to the best of my knowledge, not a um, not a writer. You know, I mean, not to say that his his account is badly written. Although I did touch it up some from its original form, as as I mentioned, it's been condensed and sort of uh, edited for clarity. And structure but even so it was it was not badly written but I, I don't again I, I it doesn't read to me like someone who's pulling something out of their ass
2: it's plausible in its normality
1: that's exactly it yeah that's exactly it and there does seem to be something to these large organizations misplacing quote evidence <laughs> you know there there does seem to be a through line there and a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show, and stuff I've heard about on your show, where you have cases where yeah things were collected and and were were lost, or the version that was returned from whatever institution is very different
2: from what was sent away, yep, yeah, and that happens in normal animals, never mind creatures of alleged myth and legend, which is bigfoot, how so? there was a famous black cat investigation in Australia, and um Obviously the authorities said it was all rubbish and nobody could possibly, because obviously cats aren't native to Australia. They were brought there by Europeans. And uh, and obviously there are many stories that the Americans are responsible for these mysterious cougars that seem to be running around Australia as some of them used to have them as mascots on their ships during the Second World War and just dumped them okay. in Australia. Or they ran off, got bored and thought, yeah, every other weird creature seems to live here. I'll fit in. Um, so <laughs> I've always wanted to eat a cassowary. Something like that. That's why the cougars have just run off. So (laughs) I always wanted to eat a giant chicken that could kill you. So the team were told that other people had sent scat to be analysed and were told it was everything like dog, domestic cat, kangaroo, anything but large cat. So they thought they'd put this bit to the test. And so they got some lion poo from the local zoo and sent it and said, right, we found this scat in the field we'd like you to analyze it they analyzed it and they said yeah it's dog so they said well it can't be dog because we've got that from the zoo and they never replied oh wow so straight away that tells you that these things do happen because i think sometimes this happens a lot in the states oddly enough talking about cats for me it's the big reason here in the uk that the authorities will not admit that there are big cats running around Britain. Because they clearly are. Right. They clearly are. Primarily because, you know, the panic that would ensue is because people, the media here get excited about somebody coming out, never mind (laughs) flesh-eating mammals roaming the British countryside, you know? They are an excitable bunch. They are. And they don't take much to get overexcited. And you'd end up with all kinds of idiots running about the woods with air rifles trying to take down things and probably end up shooting each other. Likely. But... As I spoke with David Weatherly, there are numerous sightings of large cats in Georgia. And when people spoke to the Forestry Commission, they were told that cats wouldn't come into Georgia from Florida because why would they? As if a cat, because it doesn't have the required paperwork uh, yeah. to, <laughs> to go into Georgia or doesn't have any change to pay the toll or wherever, wouldn't enter it. It's this kind of denial. ...of animals being smart and clever... ...especially when it comes to cats... ...because they've got enormous ranges... ...like wolves have... ...they will travel for miles and miles and miles... ...if they need to for for sustenance... ...for mating, whatever... ...people will flatly deny... ...that there are big cats in certain states in the US... ...because it's a problem... ...because in certain places... ...they are a protected species... ...and if you suddenly have a protected species... ...turning up in a hunting area... ...or a, a local park or a residential area, people shit themselves. They sure do. And it's very similar to this. And I think, regardless of the plausibility of the whole Bigfoot-Sasquatch conundrum, the old adage that people who spent their entire lives in the woods can't identify a bear, despite the fact that some of these people... I mean, there's a very famous... I've forgotten who it is now. There was a very famous Bigfoot witness who was told that she was completely mistaken and she'd seen a bear, and she said, Honey, I've shot 24 bears. That were no bear. And when somebody's done that, you know, with the greatest respect and apologies for my crap accent, (laughs) you know, if somebody's shot a bear, and then they see something they can't explain, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen to the opinion of a desk jockey over an experienced outdoors person, or an experienced... Native American or a First Nations tribesperson who has grown up in the areas over over any any kind of normal person telling me that they're all idiots, which is the other thing as well. There's this this kind of thing that, oh, well, if they're out there hunting, they must be stupid or they're idiots. All this stupid cliche that all Americans are dumb, you know. Oh, yeah. Come have a walk around Britain sometime. You'll be amazed. Trust <laughs> me, you know. I don't want to say it, but, yeah. You know. You know, I'm surprised some people can get dressed in the morning in this country, never mind it. So everybody's always pointing their fingers at people who live in Arkansas and Texas and Alabama and stuff, you know. Come have a walk around here, you know. I think we all, we all know it's, it's the same wherever you go. Dem- oh,
1: hey man, I know a lot of dumb people both here and back in London.
2: <laughs> so when you've got people in professions that are deemed more reliable, such as army, personnel, military personnel, you know, people who are doctors, people who are scientists who claim to this, their experience does seem to have a bit more credence. And Edwards Air Base is not the only place that seems to be quite attractive to these creatures. I know I've read that some people think that the fact that there are numerous UFO sightings in the area is not because they're coming to look at the military base, it's because they want to look at the Bigfoot. <laughs> I love that. And that's why they come. They're not bothered about us, because we're dull. They're more interested in the giant hairy hominids wandering about. That's fair, I would be too. Which makes a change from them piloting them, thank God. I mean, let's not rule that out completely. (sighs) Well, (laughs) why not? I'm, I'm sure there are alien species across the universe, and there would be millions and trillions of different types. I'm sure one of them might look a bit like a Bigfoot.
1: I'll take it. The judges will allow it.
2: Yeah, drives the millennium falcon, I think.
1: (laughs) I was recently listening to a podcast where they were talking about an article on the subject of intelligent life and how we are singularly unequipped to look for intelligent life because we don't really know what to expect it would look like. Like we we know what we think involves life. Like, because we, for example, we look for planets that have water because water is one of the integral parts of life here, but that's, that's life here. And we have such earth-centric notions of what constitutes intelligent life that we are just not really equipped to comprehend life outside our own planet because it could be so very different that won't e- we won't even recognize it as intelligent. And, and I think they're onto something because I think, you know, we, there are still people who refuse to admit that animals are anything other than automatons And do not have any kind of consciousness when, you know, that is very clearly not the case. Again, I think we all are going to have to contend with this notion that, you know, again, I like eating meat. I love it. But, you know, we're going to have to contend with the fact that you're killing a thing for sustenance, which is not a, you know, again, that's the nature of the world. But these things have a kind of consciousness. They feel pain. They feel terror. They feel fear. You have to be okay with that. You have to contend with that. You know, you're not just stop hitting stop on a mechanical process as much as you are stopping the life of a thing. And, and again, I'm not saying don't eat me because I keep doing it, but you got to kind of contend with that. And we just haven't. I think there are peop- more people willing to have that conversation. You know, I, I think, I think a lot of our vision of the natural world was shaped by documentary programming that was made to sort of entertain and terrify than actually inform you know stuff that's like nature red and tooth and claw and the law of the jungle is which is just not the case i mean absolutely of course there is you know there is survival and there is murder in the animal world but there's also survival and murder in the human world you know to to say that that is more savage than ours i I don't don't know man like you haven't been to camden new jersey or (laughs) you know a lot of these places so yeah, anyways, I, that's just my sort of uh, thinking about this. Yeah, like we, we wouldn't know intelligent life in the stars unless it literally came to us in a spaceship and said, you know, I come in peace. And we all saw how that went for Dolph Lundgren.
2: <laughs> as, as with anything, we view the universe through the prism of our own intelligence. And we believe that we are the most intelligent creature on this planet, even though we're often proved wrong, but our arrogance refuses us to admit it. You only have to look at what some creatures can do to think, what, (laughs) you know, I could watch octopus forever because (laughs) they're just, they are the most alien looking life form on this planet because they can just do anything. They're super clever. They can escape from anywhere. I mean, Christ, there's so many stories about octopus in aquariums, like the one, I forgot where it was. Brit got pissed off with the light bulb being left on in its area, so it used to knock the, fl- just flip the tank lid off and squirt water up, and burst it. Yeah, you know. Or <laughs> the famous Paul the Octopus in the 2006 World Cup that predicted the winner of every game. That it was <laughs> Didn't asked know about to. that. You know, Paul the Octopus. He was he was a legend, and uh, clearly a great name. Naturally. And um, <laughs> you only have to look at like Neptune and Uranus right? When it rains diamonds, you know, the sky, it rains diamond, right? So straight away, you've got something there that's completely out of our concept of understanding, unless we look at it through the prism of astrophysicists. And therefore, that's just where we are. That's, you know, that's happening. Yes, it's in in our known universe. That's just what we know now. We've only been going into space 70 years. We've no idea what's out there. No idea. I mean, it's like the argument that, why do UFOs have lights on it? Well, why not? You've no idea what they mean. Oh, well, they're not on some kind of superhighway. How do you know they're not? How do you know they're not using it as some kind of communication? How do you know it's not their power source? You've no idea. You cannot tell me. Once again, we go, well, we wouldn't need it, so therefore why would something else? And that's just the stupidest argument ever.
1: Uh, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah again you're applying your standard your limited human standard it's like quite frankly when we even when we talk about this notion of extraterrestrials or or even god you know this idea that if there is a creator intelligence or a greater intelligence that we could in any way hope to understand it if there is something so enormous as to be able to construct the heavens or to to even to put into play the building blocks Of life that would eventually evolve to where we are now. Even if we accept that, whatever it is you accept, or even if you want to talk about Christian God, whatever it is, it is so much larger and more complex than us. We cannot possibly hope to understand it, and to try and put any kind of human face on it is just—it's—it's ludicrous. It's—it's almost childish.
2: But we are really, if you consider it, we—we are no more intelligent than a child in the world's. in the eyes of the universe, really. That's very true. We're nothing. We are simply a speck of dust drifting through time and space. And there might be, you know, for all we know, we could be a bloody school project for Alpha Centurions to come and go, look at them. Do you remember, apparently we used to be like that three million years ago. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, God. Got them wearing clothes. Look at them. Ugh. These weirdo. Why, why wouldn't it? You know? And so, over the last, I don't know. 30, 40 years. We've, we've seen so many preconceived ideas about nature turned completely on their heads. You know, look, as I said on a couple of shows recently, you only have to look at things like pizzlies. Why would polar bears and grizzlies mate? Because they need to. Life is driven by the need for survival. And as Michael Crichton famously wrote, life will find a way. And we are looking for things on our understanding of what life requires and who's to say on the other side of the universe everything's breathes nitrogen or it eats helium for all we know we've no idea there could be like giant jellyfish type things there could be beings of light there could be beings made of diamond we've no idea everything we think about life on other planets is simply guesswork based on our understanding of the nature and the laws of physics as we understand them. And once again, these are things that have only been investigated, studied, discussed for, what, three, four hundred years? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's a blink blink of an eye in in the history of time. So there, sleep well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On the infinite (laughs) meaninglessness of the human experience, we will (laughs) come to a close. (laughs) What a way to bring in 2024.
2: Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year, indeed.
2: (laughs) We are all nothing.
1: That's it. And so the meaning in life comes from what we assign to it. And what we assign to it is our love for each other. There we go. We'll bring it back up. Beautiful. All right. Well, that was the story of Blue Eyes. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. And we are going to take a quick break and be right back with our Ghost Force shoutouts. Hey there listeners, before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help, and when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help.
2: We're not gonna try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well Just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out.
1: In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988.
2: In the UK, the number to call is 116-123. Or text SHOUT. That's S H O U T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114.
1: However bad shit seems, it will pass, and no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you, and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing? Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. The Ghost Story Guys are Luke Greensmith, who helps us find our stories. He's also the host of the Luke Lore podcast, available everywhere Find podcasts live. Tanya Downing, who manages our Facebook community and assists with editing. Adam Lynch, who edits our video. You can find his work on the Ghost Story Guys YouTube channel and hosting the podcast Weekly Creep with Dulce. Joseph Camo, who manages our YouTube account. He is also the host of the Cardinal Rule on YouTube and one of the founders of AZ Sports Underground, a website dedicated to Arizona sports. Sarah Kent, who manages our Reddit community. And our paranormal conductor is Mr. Brennan Storr. And of course, my friend and co-host, the one, the only, the inimitable, Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. What's coming up on m M&M, Paul?
2: What isn't coming up is I've booked 9,000 interviews.
1: Yeah, you've I... got what, your entire half the, the next six months planned out as far as interviews go?
2: Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got 26
1: booked. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> I'm lucky I remembered to come to recording this morning.
2: Well, I'm glad you're here. It's made my day.
1: <laughs> and mine. Thank you.
2: So uh, who's coming up next? Uh so uh this week I will be returning down under with Dylan Stewart as I discuss weird things in Australia in the skies and on the land and we talk about a few strange things and obviously his own personal UFO experience which was quite uh, quite a challenging situation and some of the experiences he's also interviewed himself through his show and then I return to the world of the paranormal as Ruth Rupert Wilde returns to talk about her latest book, These Haunted Times, Volume 4, which was released just before Christmas. Very cool. And where can everyone find you online? You can find mysteries and monsters across all social media platforms, even some bad ones.
1: (laughs) I don't know if if there are any good ones left, or if there ever were any good ones to begin with, let's face it.
2: MySpace.
1: There we go. Yeah, everything went sideways when we left MySpace in the dust. Let's go back. We're back to Lost.
2: <laughs> it's still there. Is it? It is. I randomly got an email going on a tangent. When the pandemic first started, I got an email and I thought, this is somebody trying to spam me. So I just thought, oh, well, I'll just see. And it was, it was there.
1: Well, in that case, I'm starting us a fucking MySpace page. That's what I'm doing.
2: Let's go back, everybody. Come on. Let's go back to when Gwen Stefani was good and Nelly <laughs> Furtado ruled the charts around the world.
1: Let us holler back, if you will. Woo! <laughs> I am absolutely starting a Ghost Guys MySpace page. You bet your sweet ass. Let's do it. All right. So, in, in the meantime, you can find me as largely the truth on Threads, Blue Sky, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And my other show, Weird Together, you can find the archive pretty much everywhere. Find Podcasts Live, and that is independent horror movies reviewed through a sociological lens. It's both super nerdy and a ton of fun. And again, that's Weird Together, hosted with Dr. Joseph Comeau everywhere. Find Podcasts Live. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we freaking love our patrons. Genuinely, I couldn't do the show without them. Your support allows me to be a full-time independent podcaster, to write Three and a half minute long factor ads about Krampus, which I'm sure they love, and all these other wonderful things. So again, but we understand, you know, it's a new year, money's tight, we always see a lot of churn around the new year. So if you can't afford it, don't worry, we still appreciate you. We really do. But if you can, if you can spare the the dollar a month or five bucks a month, it makes a huge, huge difference. And you get access not only to an ad-free feed, but all our bonus content. You get the me and Paul live shows every month. You get episodes of host adventures. There is like something like 70 archived episodes of Book of the Dead, Sunken Library, all kinds of cool stuff. And of course, you get that at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or by signing up to GSD Premium via Apple Podcasts.
2: Yes, we will love you like Little Clanger loved that wonderfully space handbag that landed on the moon on that particular episode.
1: Yes. And if you get that, you are roughly the correct age demographic for this show.
2: Everybody loves the Clangers.
1: Everyone loves the Clang And c- kids, Google the Clangers. Go ahead. We'll wait. Or Sooty and Sweep. Do You ever <laughs> want to have a real weepy conversation with Paul when he's hammered? Look at Sooty and Sweep and bring it up when you see him.
2: Sweeps family. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest 20 minutes of kids' television ever made.
1: I've never seen a man so happy as you were that night watching Sooty and Sweep at 2am in the lobby of that hotel.
2: He's family up
1: Oh, man. It <laughs> sounded exactly like that. Just a little more slurred, folks.
2: <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful thing.
1: And speaking of patrons, if you're a supporter at the $20 level and above, that makes you part
0: of an elite club. That makes you part of Ghost Force. <laughs> That's right. Patrons at the $20 level and above get thanked here in Ghost Force, every second episode because by god you're crazy and we love crazy
2: mm, we love crazy i think
0: it helps that we are also crazy it turns out that all the people we fly <laughs> with paul are pretty crazy <laughs> this time around the members of ghost force are ethan Saragod. amy chamberlain brand wears a pink tutu Cackling Skull. Carrie Lambertus Cheesy Thoughts. Cheryl Baker. Crazy Mom. CT. Anthony Michaud. Generic Bob. Hannah Brown. Hannah Siemens. Hilary de Caisseur. Jade Moores. Jason R. Slaughter Slaughter, Slaughter. 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 Jennifer Mullen. Jennifer Sharko Joseph Como. Caitlin Park. Kimberly Hansen. Malevolent Clamato. Mara Noriega Mark Simler Merlin Hansen, Michael Carney Nicola Peter Gunn 08.5 keep trying to make me laugh You son of a bitch Rebecca Brink Fuck you <laughs> I got him I made him laugh I win I win <laughs> I win the Ghost Wars segment this time
2: uh, uh, You think it's not over yet, bitch
0: <laughs> Ruck and Ronnie Shenanigans Samantha Ellis. Shannon Steyer. Trent Cannon. You are the few. You are the spooky. You are Ghost Force. <laughs>
1: guys, for real, thank you so, so much. <laughs> we, again, we appreciate all our patrons, but Ghost Force, you guys are, always like we said, you're crazy, and we love you for it. So crazy thank like you. Crazy like a fox. Crazy like a fox, indeed. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to join the team, again, head to patreon.com slash Guys. And if you sign up at any tier, your name will be shouted out in the opening segment. But if you want to be part of that particular group of lunatics, that's reserved for Ghost Force. All right, Paul. So you and I had a bunch of appearances uh, just prior to the new year. We were on two episodes of the TV Trivia Podcast talking about Ghostbusters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We were on the Dairyland Frights podcast.
2: Yes, yes, we were. And
1: oh, it was brilliant. And did you have any other spots?
2: Yes, I, uh, I made my debut on Jim Harold's Campfire. Of course,
1: yes, which you can find linked at ghoststoryguys.com. There's an embedded player, so you can listen to Paul on there.
2: Yeah, so uh, and I'm, I'm already booked for one in the next couple of weeks. Oh, fantastic. I shall be joining Jason Pentrell from the Seven Ages Archaeology gang which is him, Micah Hanks, and a few others, for a special edition in the next couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, Jason is a very kind supporter of of me and my work on both here and Mysteries and Monsters. So I'm uh, humbled to have been invited to join such uh, luminaries.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Seven Ages has done some really cool stuff. Uh, I mean, Micah Hanks has been in the business for ever. And I don't have anything recent uh, as far as appearances go, but I did do a spot on the Business Development Podcast back in October, which was a fun conversation with uh, the host, Kelly. So again, you'll find all of those linked at ghoststoryguys.com. Just go through the blog. You can click the tab for guest spots and you'll find all of our appearances there. If you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, head to our website at ghoststoryguys.com. We have t-shirts, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. And if you do buy something, make sure to send us a picture. We'd love to post it up on social media. You can also buy stuff at ghoststoryguys.redbubble.com, uh, but we have more and newer designs at ghoststoryguys.com, and we believe that the material there is of a uh, higher quality as well. But Redbubble, also good. Don't forget to check out our soundtrack, Ghost Story Guys Season 6, composed by Rainy Days for Ghosts. You'll find that streaming everywhere. You get your tunes. Don't worry about buying it. Uh, again, I, you can buy it on iTunes and places like that, but don't don't bother with that. Just stream it for free. We don't, uh, we don't expect anyone to buy it. This is just a, a fun thing that we wanted to do. And again, we're going to have season seven out in February. And on that subject, shout out to Rainy Days for Ghosts. He composes all the original music for this show, with the exception of our uh, p- patron theme that is licensed through Epidemic Sound. Rainy Days for Ghosts is, of course, a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. You can find more from him at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or on streaming platforms everywhere. And it's all streaming courtesy of Night, Harvest Recordings, the Ghost Story Guys house label. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him again on streaming
2: platforms everywhere. And I guess that's going to do it. Well, then, we'll be back in a week, but until then, Into the Darkness We Go.
1: came home from, uh, from Vancouver, and we found Bodhi had puked on the bed and shit on the bathroom floor, <laughs> just to really drive home his displeasure. Kids, eh? We're
0: telling you. <laughs> Where the fuck have you bastards been? Yeah, you're not wrong.
2: <laughs> that was the episode I realized I couldn't get stoned anymore. That <laughs> was hanging, hanging onto the conversation by my fingertips. That's the other thing that really fucking annoyed me about It's a Wonderful Knife. All them people doing crack. Nobody was blowing smoke out.
1: Oh, I didn't even catch that. That's hilarious. That's yeah, because
2: you've never done crack. That's true.
1: <laughs> yep, that's that. That is uh, that is an accurate statement. I have never done crack. Anyways, focus. Come
2: on. Yes. Sorry, my bad. <laughs>